from GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower on location this week at the Clean Energy Ministerial in San Francisco. On today's edition, some of the voices from this week's event, including Lisa Jackson, Jerry Brown, Danny Kennedy, Janet Napolitano, George Schultz, and, and, and... We're kicking ass and dropping names this week on 350. It's June 3rd, 2016. Welcome to this week's edition of Green Biz 350. As I said, here at the Clean Energy Ministerial in San Francisco, as always, with Green Biz Senior Editor Lauren Hepler. Hey there. My head is still spinning, but it's been an interesting couple of days. It certainly has. I mean, this is the, uh, uh, for those who don't know what the Clean Energy Ministerial, we're going to call it SEM 7, because this is the seventh annual one. Uh, SEM is the uh, gathering that's uh, now the seventh year of clean, of energy ministers, so secretaries of energy from 23 countries uh, and the European Union coming together to look at how to advance the clean energy economy. Uh, this is the first one after the Paris COP21 uh agreement. And uh, so this has some special conversations or some special significance. And um, and it's I guess it's all about accelerating process or at least getting momentum after Paris, right? Totally. And we're seeing an interesting mix. We were focused a lot on the public-private action summit. And uh, you saw the likes of you mentioned in the the run-up here, Lisa Jackson from Apple, lots of folks from utilities, disruptive clean tech companies. So sort of a mix of incumbent corporates. And there were some big goals announced this week, which we'll also get into, and some of these more forward-looking endeavors as well. So in this week's show, we're going to uh, give you some of the highlights, just little snippets here and there of a lot of the different speakers. Uh, we uh, were live streaming on this the uh, all-day event called the Public-Private Action Summit that took place on Thursday, June 2nd, and some of that uh, will be back. Uh, will be up on GreenBiz for those who weren't able to see it live. We're going to play you some of the audio snippets. We're going to talk about uh, some of the conversations we've had here and just, I guess, some of our own observations. So let's get right into it. Let's take a look at the news of the week. So the news this week we're going to talk about is all news that was made here at the Clean Energy Ministerial, and there were quite a number of announcements. Uh, Lauren, want to give us a rundown of what you uh, rose to the top for you? Yeah, so one of the big ones that I think would resonate with a lot of listeners who are familiar with groups like the RE100, the Renewable Energy 100, or the Renewable Energy Buyers Alliance, all these groups that are aimed at scaling the number of companies that are actively investing in and overseeing the development of renewable energy, is the launch of a new initiative by ARENA, that's a group that stands for the International Renewable Energy Agency, and they're jumping into this realm with an initiative called the Corporate Sourcing of of renewables campaign. So again, jumping into a space that's not entirely uncharted territory, but one that seems to be important in terms of pooling these disparate efforts from companies. Yeah, we're going to need to form a corporate energy buyers group group pretty soon <laughs> because there are so many of these groups a little bit. I think one of the things we might want to do one of these days on Green Business is do a you are here roadmap because yeah. what each of a these field guide. field guide. Thank you. 
Um, but what what does uh, this group do that the others don't? It's a bit unclear because we're obviously just learning about this this week. But the idea is to work with the 23 SEM member governments and the European Union that were represented this week and individual companies to sort of mobilize around the, this idea of enabling policies and resources to help businesses source clean power. So, again, it's not just... Um, the sentiment that companies want to invest in power, but the mechanisms to actually make that happen. Because obviously in a lot of places you're dealing with existing power laws or utility dynamics uh, in even parts of the U.S., but obviously that gets much more complicated when you start looking around the world. You've got a whole crazy jigsaw puzzle of laws you have to comply with and different market dynamics. So it's an active space, and you can see why there are so many groups getting involved with this. Irina's director general, Adnan Amin, actually spoke a little bit more about what this initiative hopes to achieve. Our cost analysis in ARENA, the International Renewable Energy Agency, has now become a real guide for people who are looking at making investment decisions in the future. We analyze 15,000 utility-scale projects in terms of uh, uh, what costs we're seeing, and we're about to release in a few days our latest costing report, but I wanted to share with you some of those numbers before the release to really give you a sense of the tremendous transformation that we are actually seeing. So we looked at solar and wind, and for uh, installed costs for utility-scale solar PV systems, we see a 54% decrease by 2025. So if you can imagine a 54% decrease on the 2.99 US dollar cents a kilowatt hour, that's remarkable. And this is due to technological improvement, manufacturing advances, economies of scale, but especially and increasingly in the future, uh, uh, reductions in the balance of system costs and better policy frameworks are taking this forward. For concentrated solar, which we've always thought of as somewhat expensive, we see that costs could decrease for uh, installed plants by one-third by 2025, uh, again, thanks to technology uh, improvements. Uh, but this could translate to a 37% decrease in the global LCOE for parabolic trough plants and 44% for solar towers. And when you combine concentrated solar and storage, we're looking at baseload uh, solar power uh, for the future. Onshore wind, installed costs for onshore wind could uh, decline by 12% by 2025, already on top of the three cents we are seeing in Morocco today, thanks to the economies of scale uh, as the market grows. And uh, we also see for offshore wind, which has always uh, been a question mark in terms of what will happen in the future, we see a 15% decrease in installed costs by 2025, translating to a 35% decrease in the global LCOE of onshore wind. Now, these are remarkable trends that we are seeing. We have made the point that we are already at the point where uh, uh, transformational change can happen on the basis of the technology we have today. But if you look at the possibilities of the future based on this kind of technological development, then the leadership being exhibited by companies in procuring renewable power actually looks like very smart business decisions. 
So there were a number of companies uh, making announcements, as usual, that tech companies seem to be at the front of the class with uh, new commitments, new goals, new initiatives. Uh, what? Uh, let's, let's go through uh, alphabetically, maybe. <laughs> well, I just so happen to have a little cheat sheet here. Uh, Apple, not surprising, since Lisa Jackson was here, you'll hear from her in a minute. They sort of detailed the work they're doing in the supply chain. So they have this goal now to install more than four gigawatts of new clean power worldwide including two gigs in China by 2020. So that's uh, sort of getting into the scope three emissions that tend to be much more messy than like a data center in Texas, say. Um, Autodesk has also announced some milestones. They are now powering their facilities with 100% renewable energy four years ahead of schedule, they say, and will now look at setting an internal price on carbon. So again, something we're seeing more companies doing, lots in the tech sector, but also energy and other areas as well. Uh, Facebook, not to be left out of its Silicon Valley cohorts, is working with the Renewable Energy Buyers Association, another one of these corporate clean energy groups we talked about, and will actually be funding that and helping other companies Companies sort of learn how to navigate the complexities of the power purchase agreements that you need to make these things happen. Uh, Google, another one, obviously, I can't leave them out, working in collaboration with governments, renewable energy buyers, and suppliers to convene a new stakeholder group looking specifically at policy and regulatory issues here. Uh, and Microsoft focusing on powering their data centers with energy that is at least 50% wind, hydro, and solar by 2018. So were there any non-tech companies doing any, you know, making any announcements? It seems like that was uh, the, the best and brightest of Silicon Valley and Redmond, Washington. But uh, who else? <laughs> a couple, yeah. So Wells Fargo has committed to purchasing renewable power for 100% of their operations by 2017. And our senior writer, Barbara Grady, also had an interesting check-in with Philips Lighting, which announced that it aims to sell 2 billion LED light bulbs in the next five years. Wow. that's. Uh, I mean, we've seen a lot about lighting here. We've seen a lot about lighting in particular in the uh, developing world and and uh, the whole conversations we've had uh, with about um, energy access, which has been one of the big themes here. Uh, we I, I spoke uh, this week at a uh, group uh, event here, a side event called Energy Access X, uh, and uh, looking at the, the really interesting issues and some controversies actually around uh, what does it take to provide uh, energy to the 1.1, 1.2 billion people who don't have uh, any access to the grid, not to mention another billion or so who have just uh, access, but it's a very unreliable grid. So uh, this, these are really interesting issues that I, I want to spend more time on, uh, not only on this program eventually, but also just writing some stories about because I'm as as those get teased out, uh, those controversies and issues, uh, I think, really interesting for the business community to sort of understand. Can you give me an example of that? Well, one of the things, Lauren, that was interesting was, you know, we've talked for a long time. There's, been, there's a book by this title by uh, Stuart Hart around the fortune at the base or the bottom of the pyramid. And, you know, the, the question is, and, and, and I talked with Tom Steyer about this for a Green Biz Studio interview, is that, you know, that just implies that this is all about making money. And there is some money to be made, but that's not necessarily how to think about that, that it's all about, you know, what's the massive business opportunity. I mean, part of the business opportunity is just to provide energy so then they can be consumers and start businesses and get education and do a whole lot of other things. And so part of it is just the framing and the way we've been thinking about it, uh, you know, here in the rich uh, part of the world 
And so I, th- there's just a lot of uh, you get you get a lot of uh, heated con- uh, conversations about this when you start using some of that uh, fairly uh, now old apparently language. It's also interesting because sort of translating the clean tech advances we've seen in rich areas like Silicon Valley and other parts of the world to the global south was also a big focus of a big clean tech expo that was also going on alongside SEM7 this week. That was in San Francisco's downtown Union Square, a big shopping area that was temporarily converted into sort of a showcase for all sorts of different emerging technologies. Well, the shopping part of it did not go away. The, The square itself got uh, taken over by this uh, about 95 uh, tech companies, uh, both big and small, from all over the world. Uh, Sweden had a pavilion, Mexico had a pavilion, there may have been some others. Uh, it was kind of a blur. There was a uh, 3D printed uh, sports car, or a racing car actually, that was really pretty amazing to look at. A lot of eye candy there. Um, but this was a showcase that uh, that was put together by uh, the California Clean Energy Fund and Clean Tech Open here in the Bay Area. Uh, and Danny Kennedy, who is uh, the founder of Sungevity, now is the uh, uh, managing director of the California Clean Energy Fund, um, uh, put it together. And he gave the tour to, to Governor Jerry Brown and the, and the, the energy ministers um, and uh, is really the ringmaster of this and so much other innovation. So we spent some time with him uh, during one of the uh, live stream uh, interviews that you and I did, Lauren, and talked to them, asked them to tell us about what was going on and what this meant. There's 100 businesses from around the world, about 18 countries represented, most of them American, about 60 percent, but 18 countries total, showing these ministers, these delegates at this Talking Heads Fest that we've got commercially ready, viable solutions going out in the world. I think it's about entrepreneurialism now taking up the mantle. I mean, people have mentioned that the finance is flowing more than twice as much into dirty energy, but we're only at base camp and we've got to you know, load up and go up Mount Everest. And who's going to do the heavy lifting? The Sherpas in this are entrepreneurs creating the businesses of clean energy. And that's why it's San Francisco is such a great place to host it. You know, that's why innovation is is key but not so much inventing something all brand spanking new but rather the ingenious combination of existing things and the rolling out of these businesses literally into markets and and policy needs to be set to enable that and activists and the social movements need to continue to push for that but we're now going to go into a phase where it's entrepreneurial business doing the creative destruction thing and getting fossil fuels done and dusted so we can build this clean energy future. Our reporter and podcast extraordinaire, Soraya Melkonian, was also over at the showcase this week, and she put together a cool video. So we'll either link to that or embed it in the podcast story. Um, But another interesting sort of development in the way that organizations are looking to connect big companies and public officials with all of the frenetic activity that's happening in the clean tech space.
All right, so let's get into some of the voices that we uh, bragged about at the top of the show. Um, uh, one of the themes that I heard a lot about was this sense of urgency that uh, you know, we need to move further faster. I mean, that just kept coming up over and over, and, and not just from the main stage, but from a lot of the smaller events, at least the ones I saw. Um, one of that part of that voice uh, came from uh, our, our governor here, here in California, uh, Jerry Brown, uh, talked about the fact that uh, we need to keep our eye on the ball. I know from my experience, so I'm not talking from what I've heard. I'm talking from what I know, what I've experienced. And the uh, political business environment is not yet at the level that the challenge requires. So on the one hand, we have to say, great, good going. On the other hand, we have to be clear enough to be able to see that we're not at the level of understanding, collaboration, or full mobilization that's required. When World War II occurred, it was in a matter of days that President Roosevelt said, no more cars. Now we want tanks and planes. And it happened. An amazing transformation. Now that level of change is not yet within our consciousness, but the challenge is of that magnitude. It's longer range, it's not armies coming over the horizon, but it is over the horizon that we can see in our imagination. And committing capital, billions, trillions in capital, requires a political level of commitment that doesn't exist yet. We're moving in that direction. But the question is, are we moving fast enough to respond adequately? And I would say, as of this moment, we're not there yet. And I can tell you, because I deal with politics, I've been dealing with it for almost 50 years, the political mind is not there yet. This is still a side issue when you compare it with all the other things people are talking about. If you just add up the digital stream of information, the climate change piece is infinitesimal. So it's big here in this meeting. But we have to find the ways to strengthen our commitment. And that commitment has to be in government. It has to be in politics, finances, business, technology, research, university, religion. All the different segments of what it is to be a human being have got to be mobilized. And this is a very important meeting. We are so much further than we were a few years ago. I gave many speeches on climate change with newspaper men in the audience, and they would never report it, because climate change is not news. It's too far away. News is whatever the event of the day, however trivial, but as long as it's exciting, as long as it's man bites dog, it's news. Well, unfortunately, the dogs are biting man in the form of climate change, and it's getting worse. So we got to make non-news news. And even today, this is not news. I like to say the end of the world is not news. If you get in a nuclear exchange and you blow the whole thing up, it'll be over. But not too many people are talking about it. Same thing with climate change. It'll take a little longer, but that's the direction we're moving in. So very much uh, I want to welcome you, tell you you're doing OK. <laughs> But don't be complacent, and don't think you got it handled, because you don't, and I don't, and we don't, but 
we still got time. And this is a very important step. So let's move forward with confidence and exuberance and zest for tackling the biggest challenge mankind has ever faced. So obviously California is an interesting case study in that they've been sort of out there in this whole push for subnational climate action where you've got states and cities sort of going it alone if you are encountering gridlock at the federal level like we are in the U.S., aside from a few exceptions like the Clean Power Plan held up in the court system. And one of the things that happened this week was uh, five uh, West Coast cities came together, uh, uh, Oakland, San Francisco, and uh, Los Angeles, and I believe Seattle and Portland came to the mayors to talk about um, uh, coming together on, on how they look at emissions and, and energy and a number of other things. Um, and and so that's just one example of of, of a regional government starting to, to work together. Mm-hmm. And California already does have their uh, goal to cut emissions 50 percent by 2030. So obviously they are sort of trying to, to regulate in this space. Um, but we also did hear Why do you from talk about they, by the way, we're all we're, we're here sitting in the in the in the middle of the Golden State. <laughs> yeah, you're one of us, Lauren. So, you know, own up to that. Not in Sacramento. Okay. Don't love me in there. Okay. Um, but no, we also did hear from a big figure in D.C., so not as common out here on the West Coast, and that was Ernie Moniz, who is the U.S. Secretary of Energy. So obviously Mr. Moniz is in sort of an interesting position playing host to this international delegation of energy ministers, and what he really tried to hone in on was the need to marry not only sort of long-term policy perspectives and thinking about how to adjust for a clean economy, um, but also sort of focusing on R&D and innovation in some areas that maybe government isn't traditionally so comfortable with. So that's sort of a snapshot of where we are now, but let's turn to where we might be headed. So let's hear from a couple more voices. One of them was Lisa Jackson from Apple. Uh, She gave a short but very uh, fact-filled and inspirational little presentation about some of the really interesting initiatives that are taking place at uh, everybody's favorite laptop company. In order for the Paris Agreement to be effective, we all have to work together to drive the global transition to the low-carbon energy and low-carbon economy we know we need. Both businesses and governments have an important role to play. Governments need businesses to transition their energy use to help drive down emissions in countries around the world. And the business community is looking to the governments to put in place policies that help and nudge businesses towards decarbonization. For me, of course, this is one of those full circle moments from spending the majority of my career in government, working at and leading the EPA, where we laid the groundwork for the regulations that will help the U.S. meet its greenhouse gas commitment, all the way to leading environmental work and worldwide government affairs now for Apple. We're now working with our supply chain to help them lower their energy use and put renewable energy projects online. For us, this is the critical work ahead and it's nothing short of monumental. Because when we measure our comprehensive carbon footprint, we find that 77% of it falls in our supply chain. But we're not shying away from this challenge. 
We're taking it on and helping our manufacturing partners make the same transition to clean energy that Apple has been making. So yes, it starts, of course, as all of you know, with energy efficiency. In the first year of our program with our supplier partners, we've helped our suppliers in Japan, China, and Taiwan identify potential reductions of over 200 million kilowatt hours of electricity. And we're now working with them to turn those identified opportunities into reductions. And we're leading the way with renewable energy projects in some of our most important manufacturing markets. We have committed to working with suppliers to install more than four gigawatts of new clean energy worldwide, including two gigawatts in mainland China by 2020. We've already gotten started with Chinese solar projects totaling more than 200 megawatts, including 170 megawatts in Inner Mongolia. And we're committing to actively engaging with ministers and partners in the US, China, and other SEM countries to drive the transition to green manufacturing. We're bringing key suppliers on the journey with us. As part of our program, Foxconn, will install 400 megawatts of solar over the next two years to cover the energy use of its iPhone final production facility in Zhengzhou, China. So we're really proud of the work we've begun and the work we're seeing from many of our partners in other countries. But we know that there's a tremendous opportunity to do much more. So to realize those opportunities, we need your help. Putting a price on carbon would be a major step in the push to help businesses make the global energy shift. Yeah, the science on global warming is clear, but so are the economics. Without clear market signals, too few companies will act, and a price on carbon would begin to address the global market's failure to factor in the long-term costs of greenhouse gas pollution. When we do start factoring in the true impact of carbon-intensive electricity and fuel that the world uses today, and we incorporate that true impact directly into the cost of goods and services, we know it will unleash a next wave of innovation. Businesses will respond as they always do, inventing and adopting new ways to minimize this cost. They will invest at a very large scale to make low-carbon technologies much more affordable and available. And then we'll deploy those technologies. And that in turn will minimize the prospect of catastrophic climate change. Now governments have a vital role to play as well to ensure a fair and manageable transition for communities and industries whose economies or operations are particularly carbon intensive. We're not taking a position today on whether cap and trade or carbon tax is the best policy. Each government will make its own decision and some already have. But whatever method you choose, we need the governments of the world to address climate change through carefully designed and thoughtful policies which address the most critical of market failures by putting a price on carbon. Another important and needed step is grid modernization. If we truly want to enable large-scale integration of renewables, we need smart grids. Smart grids provide the necessary foundation to support the broad offering of new technology-driven energy alternatives that we're all talking about. 
And finally, we need policies that make it easier for businesses to procure renewable energy. Apple and numerous other companies are aggressively sourcing renewable energy for their operations. We and many of our suppliers want to buy large amounts of renewable energy in your countries. But we need policies that incentivize rapid investment in new renewable energy infrastructure. Fossil fuels, as you know, are often subsidized, and the true environmental impact is rarely factored into their cost. So we'd also like to see policies that allow companies and customers to choose their own energy source. You heard about Singapore. It has a deregulated or liberalized energy market. That allowed us to opt out of the default utility grid mix and buy power directly and affordably from a new portfolio of solar projects there. And since Singapore's dense urban landscape doesn't really allow for broad multi-acre solar farms, we looked up. By working with local renewable energy provider Sunseep, we're able to source clean energy directly from roughly 800 rooftops in the city. That's roughly 32 megawatts of power. The project provides enough energy for us to run all of our Singapore offices, making us 100% renewable in the country. And there's even enough left over to cover our part of a shared data center that we use for extra computing capacity. We've also been excited to see the Chinese government moving in this direction and supporting the adoption of, a renew of renewable energy in direct power purchase. For us, for our suppliers, that would be a huge step forward. Europe is almost all deregulated markets also. So we've been able to switch our European stores and offices to renewable energy very quickly. We've got lots of examples like this in the US and around the world. So this truly is a moment in time. We know that energy is the leading cause of carbon in the world and enabling the broad development of clean, renewable energy is necessary to address it. And study after study points to the tremendous global economic opportunity of renewable energy. Government and business together can drive the global shift that is necessary to transform our energy use and potentially stave off some of the worst effects of climate change. We can't wait any longer. As my boss, Tim Cook, Apple's CEO, likes to say, the time for talk is past and the time for action is now. And I know it's not just laptops. They also make watches, of course. So <laughs> <laughs> let's keep moving on. Uh, sorry. There was a really interesting uh, session that um, uh, had Tom Steyer, uh, the uh, the founder of everyone calls him the billionaire hedge fund, but also the, the founder of Next Gen Climate America, as it's now called, I learned today. And um, uh, Janet Napolitano, the president of the University of California system, and George Schultz, who was uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of the Treasury, had uh, quite the Secretary resume. Secretary of Labor. Secretary of Labor for President Reagan and I think Ford and Nixon. Nixon. Wow, it goes goes back. Um, and it was really interesting, and it was it was uh, moderated by Arum Majumdar, who was the uh, former head of ARPA E, 
uh, once upon a time, and we had him on stage at one of our events. And it was, I think, really interesting for to hear them talk about a whole range of topics from, from carbon taxes to uh, job creation, but sort of how and, and what's the role of a university system uh, in, in all this? We're going to have uh, President Napolitano on stage at, at Verge in September, and I uh, look forward to talking with her about that. But should we just listen in on some of that? Let's do it. Yeah, this whole idea of how you incentivize change. In the mid-'80s, we found that a lot of scientists thought the ozone layer was depleting. There were some who doubted it, but they all agreed that if it happened, it would be a catastrophe. So President Reagan was convinced that it was a major problem. And so instead of vilifying the people who were opposed to us, he put his arm around them and said, OK, you have a different opinion. But you do agree it would be a catastrophe it happens. So let's take out an insurance policy. So that didn't get him on our side, but it got him off our back. And so we managed to put through a successful, as it turned out in the end, the scientists who were worried were right, and the Montreal Protocol came along just in time. So the insurance policy concept I have very much in mind, and second, you have to have a motivation where people think there are really consequences to what's happening that they can feel and are real. So here's my program for uh, the world in energy. Number one, sustain significant support for energy R&D. This is what Janet was talking about. Right. I say that, underline that, because we've been there. I remember in 1973, I was Secretary of the Treasury, and the Arab boycott came along. So oil prices went up, and everything was scarce. It was wild, and people came in, and they knew I had an MIT background, and they would have ideas about things you could do. So I encouraged it. Price of oil went down. Everything stopped. We went through the same thing when we had the Iranian Revolution. Interest starts when we're up, and then everything lose interest when the oil price is down. Now we have been through a significant period where oil and gas prices have been high. And during that period, we've had, I think it's fair to say, the brightest and biggest scientific and engineering effort in this area the world has ever seen. Now oil and gas prices are down. So we have to be sure this doesn't happen again. And this time, we have an argument that we didn't have before, namely that the big R&D effort paid off. There are all kinds of things you can point to and say, here are outcomes. It works. And here are prospects that are right there. So let's have a continued strong support and share these ideas. Second, I think you have to set up a major incentive. And I am in favor of a revenue-neutral carbon tax. Try a number like $200 a ton. That'll get people's attention. <laughs> and I argued to my so-called conservative friends. I said, look, you're complaining that the government is telling you do this, do this, do this. Forget it. Let's get rid of that stuff. Just put a price out there and let people react to the price. But let's be a little smart and be sure it's revenue-neutral. And you do that by having the 
revenues flow into a single place that's publicized, and I would have it administered by an existing bureaucracy like the Social Security Administration that takes in money and pays it out. When it gets to a certain point, pay it out. Say to everybody with a Social Security number, that's a big number of people, and have on the check your carbon dividend. So I get a check for $3,000, what the hell? It's a good program. Now, people will say, if the United States does things and other countries don't, what about it? Well, here's the way I would handle that problem. I would say we put a border tax on to tax the carbon that is being brought in. And that money goes part of the pot and is distributed. And if a country says, hey, how about, why doesn't that money come to my citizens? I say, it's easy. Put in a revenue carbon tax in yours and you can have the money. So it's an incentive to spread this thing around. But I think if you let the number go high enough, and you should, you can get people's attention and you get action. So a carbon price, revenue neutral carbon tax, you talked about R&D. Make it revenue neutral by distributing it to people. People. It's not and, a slush fund. Right, and then you investment in R&D. I think a lot of people around the world as a transition to a cleaner economy um, are looking for investments, financing, because, well, last year we have about globally about $300 billion of investment in renewable energy. Uh, Tom, you have been in the financing world. How do we unleash capital? And for energy, as you know, we need long-term low-cost capital. How do we unleash a trillion dollars in this business? <laughs> Well, I, I actually have a simple way of thinking about investment. And I know that in, sometimes in the energy area, people think that there is a dearth of investment dollars and that in particular, there's a stage at which the so-called valley of death where it's very hard to raise sufficient dollars. But to me, the answer to all of the investment questions comes down to revenues. And revenues come down to customers who can react and commit them. So when you think about when there has been disruptive technologies. The example I like to use is cell phones, where contrary to the ex expectations of virtually everybody, cell phones completely disrupted telephony in the United States between 1990 and 2000. And they were, because consumers were the decision makers and you could have a cheaper mobile service, virtually everybody adopted them and we had hundreds of millions of cell phones more than people had expected in the mid 80s. The key was revenues and customers. And when we think about energy, the reason that people worry about revenue dollars, and that is what is going to enable financing, is if there is some intermediary that is gonna prevent the ultimate customer from adopting even a better or disruptive technology. So when we think, and you know, the question here, if you think back, I'll just make two quick points. One is, if you think back about the companies in clean tech which are famous, which have done new things, which people think of as huge successes, the ones that immediately come to mind, Tesla, SolarCity, a couple of the others, all of them have customers who can make a decision quickly and can choose to move without institutional barriers. So when we think about electricity as, you know, are we in fact, is the answer to this gonna be a much greater electrification of society through clean generation, if that's true, 
then we're, need, we're going to need to f make sure that the purchasing dollars to new technologies and new investments are quickly available, or it's going to put a huge crimp in the style of those new technologies because the companies are going to have to last longer during a very long decision-making process. And it may be that the intermediaries who are making the decision on behalf of the ultimate customers are going to have a different incentive structure. So either we get directly to the customers and the dollars, which will make financing much more available, or we change the incentive structures for the intermediaries to reflect society's needs, which will also free up investment dollars. All the incentives need to align so that the dollars get where they need to. It's going to require taking some risk at some part uh, uh, by investors in some respects. With respect to uh, the carbon tax uh, idea, which politically could be difficult to achieve uh, on a national basis, but there's nothing that prevents smaller units from having their own internal way of taxing uh, carbon. For example, uh, it's not outside the realm of possibility. As we look toward a big multi-part system like a university achieving carbon neutrality, that we begin internally looking at something that equates to a carbon tax as a way of aligning incentives uh, at a macro, at a larger scale than, than you can, even with the most ambitious use of some of the things I've spoken about. You're absolutely right. People start putting these things, they learn how to measure carbon, they learn how to do this and that, and it can grow. But there is something else going on here that I think Janet's point and Janet's example actually show, which is the UC system is going to be carbon neutral by 2025. And they're going to do that because they think it's the right thing to do. They want to be leaders. They have high ideals and values, and they want to live up to those values and exemplify them for everyone else. So I give her and I give the UC system incredible respect for announcing that and making it happen and showing the rest of us what we can do. But there's another point. For the society as a whole to work, you've put in kind of a goal and a rule that what you're going to do. As a society, if we're going to do it, we're going to have to decide together to put in that kind of goal and that kind of rule to determine how everybody, not just the most high-minded, the you know, most res responsible, but everybody in society is going to be on a level playing field, playing by the same rules, and achieving the outcome that is good for all of us. And that's our 350 podcast for this week here at the Clean Energy Ministerial in San Francisco, California. As always, you'll find the links to organizations, stories, events, and so on that we mentioned in this episode. Just go to greenbiz.com slash 350. Uh, and if you have any ideas, comments, uh, idea, uh, <laughs> feedback, we're a little bit sleep deprived here at, uh, on the <laughs> set. Uh, just go to 350 or send us an email at 350 at greenbiz.com. Thanks to our podcast director, our videographer, our just amazing reporter, uh, Soraya Malconian, for uh, help uh, well above and beyond the call of duty this week. 
And we'll see you back here next week for at least a couple more shows uh, before we head off to uh, Verge, Hawaii, the week of of uh, June 20th or 19th or 20th. Um, but meanwhile, uh, look for greenbiz.com wherever you find podcasts. And for all of us here at Greenbiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, have a great day.